Good evening. Oh man, you're asleep already. That's amazing. Good evening. Usually they wait about at least till I get started before they go to sleep, but man, they went right off the bat. Good evening. Good to see you all this evening. We're going to see if we can finish up this series tonight. We've done four. This is the fifth one, and uh, actually I think this is one of the most important ones of the whole series, and uh, we'll get into the, why that is. We've made it to the last session, though. I'll tell you, when we get to the end, before we leave, I'll give you kind of a, a schedule for what happens from here on out for the next few weeks, but uh, before we get into things, I want to read you one more journal entry. Every week, I've read you a journal entry from some famous people. We've read journal entries from Marilyn Monroe and Nathaniel Hawthorne, Einstein, uh, Mark Twain. I mean, we've just read a lot of those, but I want to read one that's especially close to my heart this evening. Uh, tonight, I want to read something that's especially moving. It's a journal entry from a sexual abuse survivor that I worked with years ago. And, uh, and it's strong, but because of the length, I'm not going to put it up on the screen, so just, just listen as I read it. She titled this journal entry, Where Was God? Okay, listen to this. Why does everyone always seem to like, excuse me, why does everyone always seem like they're trying to create reasons for God's absence during their abuse? People are always stating, if I look hard enough, he gave me the comfort. If I have to search and question how his presence was there and the comfort he provided, how is that different than searching for ways that our abusers or our non-abusive parents comfort us? Why is it only called enabling and denial when we are searching for answers to human ignorance? Now listen to this. I have quit covering up for my parents' participation in my abuse. And I refuse to start creating ways that God was present and helped me through it. I believed in God when I was young, and I prayed to him, and I asked him the big why questions. And after a while, you just quit asking. You just accept the silence. I don't understand the anger I feel towards God. And my therapist will probably say that I'm just displacing my anger. But I know that there is a God. And he has the power to stop horrible acts. And he chooses when to intercede and when not to. Everyone loves to bring up the fact that God gave man the ability to choose. And that's why we have sin in the world. No one ever mentions that God has the ability to choose as well. People do not talk about this because then they would have to face the reality that this was his choice not to save them. I'm sick of hearing about Jesus' ultimate sacrifice in comparison to my abuse. Yes, it was horrible, and I understand the severity and the meaning behind his death, but there is one main difference. Jesus knew the purpose of his torture, and it was his choice to participate. At no point did God inform me of my choices or explain what was going to happen or the purpose behind my abuse. The only similarities was that he turned his back on me just like he turned his back on Jesus. How would you respond to that? Or, or maybe a better question is this. How does this journal entry make you rethink how you respond to people in crisis and trauma. 
I told you, journal entries are, are strong. They reveal the, something about the writer. Um, and that's why we've been going through this. I've told you that the book of Jonah is much like a journal entry. And you can learn a lot about a person by reading their journal entry. You can really learn a lot about this person by reading their journal entry. So we've looked at each section as a series of messages from Jonah's journal. And because the book of Jonah reads like a journal, that's why I've been giving you all of these things. So let, let me bring you up to date really quickly. We've gone through Jonah's journal, and we followed Jonah from the time that he receives his call from God to make this 500-and-some-mile trek to Nineveh, this large, fortified Assyrian city of, the, of just the most ruthless, heartless enemies of Israel. And we've watched Jonah run in the opposite direction from where God told him to go. We watched him go down to the city of Joppa and down to the docks and down into the ship all trying to get away from God. We've watched God hurl a huge supernatural storm at the ship, which had its most seasoned sailors terrified. And then we've watched these pagan sailors just beside themselves, trying to rescue their ship, trying to throw over cargo, praying out to their gods, and then we find that they discover that Jonah is the reason for this storm. We watched as they discover that, and, and he tells them that he was to blame for the storm and that he's a prophet of the God of Israel. And then we watched these sailors just panic because if God is that kind of God big enough to throw that kind of storm at them, then when Jonah says, I tell you what, if you'll just throw me over, the storm will stop. They don't want to do that. They don't want to make him even more angry by throwing his prophet overboard. So they scramble even more. And we saw that that didn't work. And they agonized over it. And they prayed as they were getting ready to throw Jonah over this overboard. God, please don't hold this against us. And we observed as Jonah hit the sea that when he comes back up, it's as still as glass. Until some sort of huge fish surfaces and engulfs him and takes him down. And then we even get to, because of the journal entry, we even get to take a look inside the fish. When Jonah finally turns to God and submits to what God wants him to do. And then we see this ugly scene of this fish vomiting out Jonah on dry land. And then we followed Jonah. We got to take a look at him. We watched him pick himself up, hear the exact same instructions, and obey this time. Make that 500-and-some-mile trek to Nineveh. And this time, we watched him obey it. And then we saw Jonah entering into the gates of Nineveh and wandering through Nineveh for about three days to preach a simple eight-word prophecy of destruction. And finally, last week, we saw the king of Nineveh and all the inhabitants of Nineveh repent and put on sackcloth and ashes and turn to God. And that's where we left it last week. Now, that should be the end of the story, right? Everybody loves a happy ending. You want to get to the end of the story and everything turn out great. So that should be the end of the story, but it's not. We have seen in the book of Jonah where 
everything in Jonah gets turned upside down, gets spun on its head. It's just different, and there's no difference with this last chapter. That's not the end of the story. We're going to cover the end of the story tonight, and it's perplexing, and it's confusing. It's not the happy ending we want. So let's go. That's the recap. Let's go to this. I've been giving you every week kind of a fictional, fictitious, fictional. That's not a word, is it? Fictional? I think it's fictitious. This fictitious journal entry from Jonah. And so let me give you one of those, and then we'll read the text that it's based upon. He spared them. Can you believe it? He spared them. After all the hurt they've caused, after all the harm they've done, after all their rebellion, he spared them. How could he do this? I thought he was supposed to uphold justice. They got off scot-free. That's why I didn't want to come in the first place. That's it. I'm done. I should have died at sea. Now that sounds a little over the top, but listen to the text. Starting in the last verse of chapter 3. When God saw what they did, meaning Nineveh, and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Then you move into chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and a merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting in disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. He's a cheery sword, isn't he? And the Lord said, gotta love this, do you do well to be angry? You know, which probably made Jonah even more angry. You know? You ever had your spouse be really mad at you? And when they're done fuming at you, you go, are you mad? (laughs) It's kind of the same deal here. It's kind of the same deal. So let's take apart the text, okay? Let's take apart the text. Let's start with God's response to Nineveh. God's response to Nineveh. It says, basically what it says is, when they repented, he relented. When they repented, he relented. It says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster. So, when they repented, he relented. Now, interesting thing about this word relented. means to console or to comfort oneself, but there's, a, there's an added meaning tacked in here, and that is to sigh or breathe strongly. It's as if God watched Nineveh get to the very edge of destruction, and then they repented and turned back to him. It's like he went, Whew. what's that tell you about God? You need to get this one. What's, the, what's that? The fact that when they get to the very edge and then they turn back and repent and God goes, what's it tell you about him? Hmm? Say it again, I'm sorry. He's merciful. Yeah. 
you know, we, we like to think of God as the one that if you don't get it right, he's going to let you know, right? When stuff goes wrong in your life, typically the first thing we think of, well, what did we do wrong? We have this assumption that God is like some school marm with a ruler in his hand and just watching over our shoulder for us to make a mistake, and then he's going to crack us on the knuckles. This is not the picture of God that you see here. This is a God that's pleading for the most heinous, evil, war crimes kind of people there is to repent and turn. He's longing for them. We think God just longs for the good people. But he doesn't. He longs for them too. And so they repented and he whew, relented. That's God's response to Nineveh. Now, look at Jonah's response to God. You see that in the first verse of chapter 4. Jonah's response to God was just the opposite of God's response to Nineveh. Completely the opposite. Look what happens with Jonah. He's displeased. That's to put it mildly. That word displeased means to do or to be evil, to turn bad. He wasn't just a little miffed. He, something broke in him. He's displeased to turn, to be evil, to turn bad. And not just a little bit. He's displeased exceedingly. He's not just a little miffed. In other words, something went dark in Jonah. Something went dark on his inside because he viewed what God did as evil. God should never have spared Nineveh in Jonah's eyes. And finally, it says he was angry. But here's what that word means in Hebrew. It means to become hot, to burn with anger. He's seething. He's raging angry. So God has this merciful, I'm so glad you turned, response to Nineveh. And Jonah has this seething anger response to God. Then it says, he prayed. Now, notice, this is only the second instance in the book of Jonah. We're four chapters in. This is the only second time he's prayed. And uh, the first time he prayed from inside the fish. And now he prays because he's so hacked with God. And so what that tells us is Jonah prays when things are, when he's upset and things aren't going his way. That's when Jonah prays. A little close to home for some of us. I mean, really think about it. If things are going well, we just cruise on. It's, it, a lot of times we wait till things are not going good. And then we say, God, why is this happening? This is Jonah. This is us sometimes. He prays. And he says basically, I knew you were going to do this. That's why I ran. Jonah complains. He complains because God is merciful. Because he's gracious. Because he's slow to anger. Because he's abounding in steadfast love. Because he relents from disaster. Basically, Jonah is telling God, you are a no good, dirty, rotten forgiver. I mean, that's what he's, that's, that's his case against God. He's, he's upset. Now, what strikes you funny about that response from Jonah? 
I mean, think about everything that we've been through in the book of Jonah. What strikes you funny about this? Hmm? He is miserable. Bingo. He did all of those things, and he reveled in the mercy he got. I mean, he got spit up on land. He didn't drown. He didn't die. But when they happened to someone else, he was not that pleased. Jonah was grateful for all those qualities. Mercy, graciousness, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster when those were pointed towards him. But not so much when they, point, when they were pointed towards his enemy. And at the risk of stepping on my own toes, we do that a lot. We all love grace as long as it's coming our way and not someone that we don't like. Right? I'm going to meddle just a little bit. It'll probably get me in trouble. That's the problem with our country right now. Because we split off into sides and neither side wants to give the other side any grace, any mercy. It's my way or the highway. This is, this is our issue and this was Jonah's issue. We, we love the grace and mercy as long as it's coming our way. Just don't let it be towards those people that we don't like. But listen, listen to these words from 2 Corinthians. One, three through four. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our afflictions. Think of Jonah, who comforts us in our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who uh, comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort that we ourselves have received, or are comforted by God. In other words, God is this. Merciful God who comforts us in our afflictions so that when we come across others in their afflictions, we can do the same thing. This is not what Jonah is doing. Not only is it not what, it's do- what he's doing, but he wants to die. He wants to die rather than see God be kind and gracious to his enemy. He'd rather die than celebrate Nineveh's repentance and their salvation. Perhaps you've heard this before. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison yourself and waiting for the other person to die. This is Jonah. This is Jonah. He is full of poison, and he's just hoping the other person will die. This is where he's at, overrun with anger at the unfairness of everything. So much that he wants to die. But just like on the ship, he won't do it himself. He wants God to do his dirty work. He's just mad. So, let's look at God's response to Jonah. God's response to Jonah, really short, really simple. Jonah has this long, spewing, angry speech towards God, and God simply says, do you do well to be angry? I I just think that's comical. I really do. I think that's very comical. Why would he ask this question? though I mean just to get Jonah's goat or why would he ask this get him to to get Jonah to think to get him to look at what he's doing notice he didn't say do you have a right to be angry he said do you do well 
by being angry. The question is, is your anger good for you? Is it helping you? Now, sometimes we just vent just to vent, and maybe that's what Jonah was doing. But have you ever noticed that the more you vent and complain and, and give voice to your anger, the angrier you get? It's like, here, here's a fire. Let's put it out with this gasoline. You know? And, and, and so the more you ruminate on it, the more you rehearse it, the more you do, the angrier you get. And so God is basically saying, is this helping you any? It's a Dr. Phil move. How's that working for you, Jonah? It's very much what you see God asking Cain. Go back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 5 through 7, and God's dealing with Cain in his anger, and, and, and this is before Cain kills his brother Abel. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and is so angry his face fell. And then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? This just seems to be how God does this, you know. He doesn't get into all the flowery stuff, doesn't get into the rationale. He just says, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. That's the same. He had to deal with this in the very beginning of time with Cain, and now he's still dealing with Jonah the prophet in the same thing. It's the anger piece. When it comes to anger, here's what I've, I've learned through counseling and through studying the scriptures. God wants us to be aware of the presence of anger. Sometimes you're angry and you don't even know it. I mean, this really happens in my office. I'll have people in my office, and I'm listening to them, and they're angry, and the veins in their neck are sticking out, and their face is starting to flush red, and you can see the white knuckling the chair. And I'll say, what are you feeling right now? They'll go, I don't know. I don't know. They're not even aware of it. And sometimes we're not even aware of what we're feeling, especially with anger, until it's already gotten us in trouble. God wants us to be aware of his anger. That's why he tells Jonah, do you do well to be angry? That's why he tells Cain, why are you angry? He's basically pointing out, hey, do you realize what's going on? So be aware of the presence of anger. Be aware of the root cause of anger. And it's usually never exactly the thing in front of you. It's about something that thing reminds you of. Let's say you had a really critical parent growing up. And so now you're married and your spouse says something fairly innocent of like, why did you do it that way? You're just mad. How can they be so critical of me? When they just ask a simple question. Because what happened in front of you is not the root of your anger. It's something else. And God wants us to, to root that out. Remember he talks about not letting a root of bitterness grow up within you? Because those are hard to pull up. Those are hard to pull out. So, and he wants you to be aware of the dangers that can result from our anger. Now, please do not hear me. I'm not saying that anger is bad all the time. Look at James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. But that's the anger of man. We'll see another place later that says that we are to be angry and sin not. 
So God wants us to be aware of the presence of anger, where it's coming from. Be careful where it could lead, all right? So those are the first four verses out of that chapter, the last chapter. Let's do some takeaways, and then we'll finish up the chapter and finish up the series. Takeaway one, God is genuinely relieved and rejoicing when our enemies turn to him. The question is, do we feel the same way? Or do we secretly hope they'll get what they deserve? And oftentimes, if we're honest enough, it's the latter more than the former. You know? You get mad at somebody at work, you get mad at a spouse, and you think, I hope they have a flat tire on the way to work. <laughs> that would serve them. That, that, that's what they deserve. We do that. That's not the way God thinks. That's not the way God operates. All right? That's takeaway number one. Takeaway number two. Perceived injustice can produce either anger towards God or trust towards God. And the choice is ours. It can either turn you to trust or it can turn you to anger. This is what God was trying to get through to Cain. This is what God's trying to get through to Jonah. The choice is yours. But this anger is going to take you one place or the other. Remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? How many times was he mistreated? How many times did he suffer injustice? And he just made a choice to focus on doing what's right and moving forward rather than getting steeped in anger and hurt. And the reason that was so important for him is because eventually his brothers were going to come to him. And by the time his brothers had gotten to him, he had already learned the habit of letting injustice turn him towards trusting God rather than anger. So when his brothers came, he could deal with it. We just don't practice that enough because it's hard. It is. Another takeaway. Don't assume that your anger is righteous. Admit your anger to God. Ask him to help you examine the root of your anger and the dangers of nursing it. Righteous anger, we saw that earlier. Man's anger doesn't bring about the righteousness of God. So you've got to examine your anger. And then Finally, let me give you this verse that goes with that. We talked about this. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, I've heard people talk about this verse in the context of marriage where it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger so you can't be angry with one another at bedtime. You can't go to bed angry with one another. And I'm just telling you that if I followed that practice, I would have lots of sleepless nights. You know, I'd be coming to work bleary-eyed. I'd be sleep-deprived. I don't think that's what that verse means. That verse means don't nurse your anger. Don't hang on to it. Don't stoke it. Don't huddle it over like a fire and keep feeding it. There are some things you, especially in marriage, you're not going to solve that night. The best thing you can do is to say, let's just agree not to talk till tomorrow. You know, uh, but then you eventually got to talk. So it's not an either or. All right, questions, comments before we finish out the rest of the chapter. What are you hearing? What are you not hearing? What do you think you're hearing?
Well, I think anytime you stand up and speak for God, it's what God's doing, not what you're doing. It's the Holy Spirit that draws people and works in their heart. Uh, I mean, gracious. You know, they used to teach monkeys and chimpanzees to fly rockets. So most anybody like me can stand up here and do this because it's not me. It's God working. And, uh, and I will tell you, there are times when I've stood up here or stood in the worship center on a Sunday morning to preach, and I didn't feel like it. I just didn't. Maybe it was a bad morning. Maybe I was nursing a grudge. I, you just have to trust that it's not you doing it. It's God doing it through you. But yeah, he, he was probably kicking a few rocks. You know how that goes. Someone else? Yes. No. You a hothead? Not really. Right. Often, kind of ongoing anger issues are about something else. I had a professor in seminary used to say, uh, if you dig underneath anger, you'll find hurt. And... Uh, and oftentimes an ongoing anger issue is really about something else, deeper, farther back. And if you can get to that, then you can dismantle the anger. We don't know what it was for Jonah. We just know he was mad. All right, anyone else? All right, let's finish this out. Let's go to the last part of the last chapter. We'll give you one more fictitious entry and give you the text behind that, and then we'll tear apart that text. And see how we can finish this book. Here's the fictitious entry. I'm sitting here just east of the city, waiting to see if he might still give them what they deserve. I can't believe that he'd let them off the hook and then ask me if I had the right to be angry. Especially after all they've done. And this heat, even after putting up a shelter to block the sun, it's still sweltering. And I was beginning to think he was just going to not let up. But then, it looked like I was going to catch a break. He provided some shade for me from in the form of this big leafy plant. But just as I was getting comfortable, he took that away too. And this wind, it is so unbearable. At least dying at sea would have been cooler. If you want to know if I have a right to be angry, well, of course I do. Aren't you paying attention? What? Feel sorry for them? How am I supposed to feel so answer that? How am I supposed to do that? And the, it, the journal entry ends. Now let's look at the text. Jonah went out of the city and sat down to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Remember, God said, 
40 days and then Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jonah preached for three days. So what, there's about 37 days left. And he's just going to wait and see if at the end of 30 days, maybe God will just go ahead and do what he said he would do. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad. It's the first time you hear this from Jonah. He's exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Feels like a game of cat and mouse, doesn't it? When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. This is the third time he's made this request. That he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, We've heard this before. Do you do well to be angry? It's a little more specific about the plant, for the plant. And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and was perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons? who don't know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is an interesting, interesting interchange. Let's take this apart, and let's start by talking about the prophet. Notice it says he went out of Nineveh. He did not stay in Nineveh. Now, there was no reason why he couldn't. The Ninevites were not enemies anymore. Matter of fact, he was probably a big hero for warning them. He could have stayed in Nineveh, but he didn't. He still holds a grudge. Still doesn't want to have anything to do with them. So he went out to wait out the 40 days, still hoping God's going to destroy them. Now, note that he obeyed God. He did what God told him to do, but his heart's still dark. Been there? Done that? Okay, God, I'll do this, but I don't want to. I don't like it. This is where Jonah's at. That's the prophet. Now let's talk about the plant. Notice it says God appointed a plant. This is another reference to his sovereignty. All throughout the book of Jonah, we hear about the sovereignty of God over all of creation, over everything. And so, this is another point to that. Now, some, some commentators think that this could have been the castor bean plant like this makes any difference to us but it could have been the castor bean plant because it grows very rapidly in hot climates it can reach 12 foot high very leafy and it easily withers if you damage the stalk so some people think that's probably it now scripture says it doesn't say it grew up in one night and was gone the next it just says it grew up in a night and it was gone in a night because Jonah remember still waiting out these 40 days but even over 30, over even 35, 37 days, that's still something pretty miraculous, right? Now, note that God provided the plant, it says, the text says, to save Jonah from his discomfort. The word discomfort means evil. God's trying to reach Jonah. 
just like he reached Nineveh. So he raises this plant to give him shade, hoping that Jonah will relax and realize how angry he is and, and, and turn to save him from his discomfort or his evil. But here's the deal. Jonah is more overjoyed with his personal comfort than the sh- of the shade. He's more, more overjoyed with the shade and his personal comfort than sparing all those people in Nineveh. That st- I, may not bother you. That steps on my toes. Because how often have I been more focused on my personal comfort? I've guarded my personal comfort. That's one of my faults. I'm just telling you, that's one of my faults. Because I've told you before, I'm a flaming introvert. Uh, People, no offense, people wear me out. They do. They just, and, and, and I'm learning to be extroverted in degrees. But there comes a time when I just need to go home and close the garage door and read a book or something. Because I've got nothing left. And, uh, and, and so it's really easy for me to specialize in my own personal comfort, just like Jonah. Uh, and that was part of the problem. But Jonah had another problem. We looked at the prophet, we looked at the plant, let's look at the problem. It says God appointed, there's that word again. He appointed the plant, and then he appoints a worm to attack the plant. I find it interesting that a worm gets credit in scripture. You know? I just like that. I mean, it's like God's, you know, the old hymn, his eye is on the sparrow. Wouldn't it be great if we had a hymn that said his eye is on the worm, you know? Uh, but it says he appointed a worm to attack the plant. God gives, God takes away. Tells us that in Job chapter 1. So, again, it's a reference to his sovereignty. God's sovereign over the worm. He's sovereign over the plant. He's sovereign over the wind. He's sovereign over the fish, over the storms. And then there comes this scorching east wind. And that's a problem for Jonah. So that brings us to this, the pouting. The pouting. And you know what? My life can track this really easily. I'm a big powder. I really am. I'm, I'm the marriage counselor. I'm supposed to be telling people how to do marriage. But when I get into a jam between me and my spouse, I pout. And she knows it. And she'll say, is something wrong? And I'll go, no, nothing's wrong. And she knows something's wrong. And she'll wait me out. And, uh, and the thing of it is, she might ain't even bring it up again. And then it makes me even more mad. So pouting, I get this with Jonah. It's like Jonah is saying, okay, first God, you spare potentially, it says 120,000, but potentially 300,000 people. You spare that many people. And you take away my shade. That's the last straw. You know? You spare 300,000 people, but then you go and take my shade. What's up with that? And he's pouting. This is a man who's all wrapped up in himself. So for the third time, he says he just wants to die. And again, God questions his anger. Only a little more specific this time. But God said to Jonah, do you well to be angry? Not just angry. This time, angry for the plant. It's like God's really trying to get his attention. Do you, you know, it's one thing to say, do you well, do well to be angry? 
But it's another thing to say, do you do well to be angry about a plant? This is kind of the inflection in the scripture. And, uh, and so here's the final point in all of this. The point. The point is this. It's like Jonah's saying, yeah, I have reason. And so God finally drives home a point to Jonah. He finally drives home a point. He says, you show pity for a plant which has no intelligence, which was here one day and gone the next, but you have no pity for nearly 300,000 people who were just as equally ignorant as that plant. What's wrong with this picture, Jonah? What's wrong with this picture? Donald Baker wrote a book called Jonah and the Worm. This is how he describes this in his book. He says, let's analyze, it's, it's as if God is saying, let's analyze this anger of yours, Jonah. It represents your concern over your beloved plant, but what did that really mean to you? Your attachment to it couldn't have been very deep. It was here one day, gone the next. Your concern was dictated by your self-interest, not, not by genuine love. You never had a devotion of a gardener. If you feel as bad as you do, what would you expect a gardener to feel like who tended the plant and watched it grow only to see it wither and die? This is how I, meaning God, feel about Nineveh, only much more. All those people, all those animals, I made them. I cherished them all these years. Nineveh has cost me no end of effort, and it means the world to me. And your pain is nothing compared to mine when I contemplate their destruction. That's pretty strong. This is where Jonah's at. And then finally... The pause. The pause. Finally, the book of Jonah ends with a pause. It just leaves you hanging. You know that the city of Nineveh turned, but you don't know what happens to Jonah. You don't know whether Jonah ever gets it or not. Does he turn? Does he die in the desert? Does he go back mad? You don't know. Why in the world would God end a book like this? This way. That is a question, by the way. So he leaves Jonah's story open-ended. So, uh, because our story's open-ended, maybe. Do you ever walk out of a movie and it, it comes to the end and you go, what? That's it? Where's the rest of it? I sat there this long for this? We've gone five weeks through just to get to a point where it just stops and you don't know what happens. Pardon? Yeah, haven't seen the sequel yet. Maybe we are the sequel, actually. Maybe that's it. Huh? No country for old men. You know, I think it's intentional. Though I might not know why, I'm pretty sure that the book ends this way intentionally. 
Look at everything Jonah has been through, everything that God presented to him, everything God took him through to this point, and he still hasn't got it. Jonah is the same Jonah at the end of the book that he is in the beginning of the book. I mean, and that's sad, right? I mean, anybody that gets rescued from the inside of a fish should have a little bit better outlook on life, shouldn't he? You know? Anyone that marches in and preaches an eight-word sermon and 120 to 300,000 people change, they should have a little bit of different outlook on life. After everything God has shown Jonah and done for Jonah, he still has the same outlook. And so you and I need to hold up the mirror and say, how about me? We complain like God's never done anything for us because we don't look back at what he's done for us. We don't think about everything he brought us through. I have a scar right here. Uh, got it in the oil field and I was preoccupied with something and took off a connection that was under pressure and it went boom and hit me right there in the head right there you know how much difference it would have taken to take out an eye I mean I was a mess I was driving back to the office hand over here driving I'm bleeding all over myself how often do I think about that? Rarely. And yet it's one of the things that God has done for me. And so when he asked me to do something, I'm like, oh, God, really? How do I know this is going to turn out right? He should probably say, hey, remember this car right there? How many things has God taken you and I through, provided for us, taken care of us, and in a lot of ways we're still the same person here that we were here? I mean, book of Jonah's tough. It seems like it's a book that's tough on Jonah. It's tough on us. All right, before we do the takeaways, any comments, questions? Oh, that's a good point. Right. It's a good point. He, he points out the similarity to the story of the prodigal son because when you get to the end of that, you don't know if the prodigal son ever comes in and makes it right with the family. It just leaves the story hanging. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I mean, he's invested. God is invested in people, the good ones and the bad ones. And, uh, and look how long he took to reach Nineveh. I mean, God, it's not like God woke up one day and said, you know what, I've forgotten about Nineveh. They've been out there doing their own thing for so long. I, I, I probably ought to do something about that. No, he'd been pursuing Nineveh as long as there had been a Nineveh. And who knows how long it took him to reach that. So, chances are, 
Jonah went away mad after the end of 40 days came, and it's kind of like Y2K. Date comes, nothing changes. Jonah goes, oh, mad. But my guess is God was still pursuing him. We just don't know what happened. Or if Jonah wised up. Anyone else? Yes, even in all Jonah's ugliness, God still used him. And he was still patient with him. Jonah and the Ninevites were no different. That's the whole thing Jonah couldn't see. And this is the whole thing that the book of Jonah tries to, to show us is Jonah and the Ninevites were one and the same. Not two different categories. It, they were just the same. The difference is the Ninevites turned, repented, were grateful. And Jonah hadn't found it yet. To, to our knowledge, we don't know what happened afterwards. But I do think it leaves the story open because that's where we're at. That, that's who we are. Our story's still open. Anybody else? God can still use us no matter what our situation is. Yeah, even the rebellious ones of us. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we're off the hook of dealing with God about it. Say it again. Why did God choose Nineveh? Why did God choose Jonah? Because he was... Uh, if they were so much alike. Well, I think he chose both of them. And so, and, and that's kind of the message. God chose both of them, but their responses were different. And, and so we like to think God chose us because we responded. God didn't choose us any more than he, boy, this is going to get me in trouble, than he chose Adolf Hitler. But Adolf Hitler would not respond. Scripture tells us that God is no respecter of persons. Yes. Yes, God's going to meet you where you're at, which means that God has to go to the far country. Because that's where we're at. Right. It's like the story of the Good Samaritan. You know. He met the Good Samaritan, uh, the Good Samaritan meets this Jewish man where he's at, and he takes care of him, and he stays with him for the night, and he makes sure he's taken care of after he's gone. Yeah, this is our God. We have, we have kind of shaped God into a different image. All right, anything else before we do the takeaways? Okay, takeaway number one. You can obey God and still have a darkened heart. You can. You know, you've had children where you've told to do something. And when they finally did it, they did it mumbling under their breath. Right? Uh, you can obey God and still have a darkened heart. Listen to Isaiah 29, 13. And the Lord said, because this people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. You can do both. So, 
And I'm just telling you, I come to church at times, and I don't want to be here. I come Sunday to worship, and my heart is not in worship condition. It just is. I hope that doesn't discourage any of you, but it, it happens. So you can do what God wants you to do and still not be right. All right, that's the first takeaway. Let's look at the second one. Personal provision apart from God's will is, will never be enough. Personal provision apart from God's will. Jonah builds a shelter. It wasn't enough. Listen to uh, Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives his beloved sleep. That's a convicting verse for me. Because we try to do the personal provision ourselves apart from bringing God into the formula, into the equation. All right? A couple more. Beware of putting personal comfort ahead of God's desires. Now, does that mean that God doesn't like, doesn't want you to be comfortable? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that God doesn't like you to have things or enjoy things? No, it doesn't. It just means you can't get used to them because it won't always be that way. One of my favorite quotes from Corey Ten Boone is, I've learned to hold things loosely in my hands because it hurts when God pries my fingers off of them. So, you can have comfort. You can have these kind of personal comforts. Just don't hold on to them too tightly. Look at Matthew chapter 8, 19 through 22. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another disciple said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Beware of putting personal comfort ahead of God's desires. And the last takeaway. How our story ends depends upon us. If you're in this room and breathing, your story's not done. Your story hasn't ended. You may have a lot of the book behind you. You may have half the book behind you. You may have the first third of the book behind you. But it's just part of the story. It is not the story. How it ends is yet to be seen. But you have a say in that. You get to do something about that. Okay. Questions, comments on this or on the whole series, whatever. Talk to me. Yes. <laughs> Trust me, it's the truth. Uh, you know, last Sunday, you know where I wanted to be last Sunday morning? At home. Because it was raining and it was pouring. I thought, man, my sofa would be so wonderful right now. My recliner would be great. Uh, yeah, did I succumb to that? No, 
wanted to, but no. Uh, you know, it, it's just real easy to fool ourselves in thinking, well, I checked a box, I'm okay. But God is not interested in that as much as he is our heart. Remember Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is quick, meaning living, and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow. And then the last part says, And is a discerner of the thoughts and in the intents of the heart. That's what God's looking for. One of your fighter verses talks about those whose heart I forget exactly how it says, but its heart is uh, turns towards me or something of that nature. God's concerned about the heart. All right, anybody else? I think it points to our priorities and like what's important in our life. So if our interests are what we have in front of us, then it's going to be God. Yes. And it's like that idol too. Are we idolizing the things in life that the things that take care of us above the the what we feel like we need to show for God? Yes. 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 <laughs> so I just think that that's what's most important to me is because he knows my needs. And if I would just, you know, submit to him for yeah. him, then it could be so important. Yes, it would. If, if you and I both would just submit and turn everything over to him instead of being so wrapped up in ourselves, it would be easier. But that's part of the fall. That's what we constantly fight. It's the fight between spirit and flesh. And, and again, that's another fighter verse that talks about those who feed the, the flesh reap the things of the flesh, and those who feed the spirit reap the things of the spirit. So, yeah, easier said than done, but you're exactly right. All right, let's wrap this up. Let's talk about what happens from here on out. Now, um, we will not meet next week. It's Master's Week. Everything stops for Master's Week. I'm not so sure, but what God takes a week off. I'm not sure. Um, Everything is just Master. He may be on the course next week. I don't know. Uh, But we will not meet next week. The week after that we'll meet. Andrew Skelton is going to take you through a three-week series called A Summer Road Trip. And that series is a great series. He's already kind of told me about it. And it's going to talk about how to make the trip and get to the destination God wants you to get to. How to get from where you are to where God desires you to be. And he's going to do that in three weeks, which I think is pretty aggressive. So uh, that'll be great. So that'll be three weeks after you come back from Master's Week. And then the Wednesday after that, the fourth Wednesday, we will be doing something on campus in the worship center in honor of National Day of Prayer. And, And that's going to be a big event. And so we want you to, you'll hear more about that as, as we get closer to that. And after that, I can't remember. <laughs> I was lucky to keep those in my head, actually. Uh, so I don't know what happens after that. But something will be happening because something's always happening around here. So, All right, before we go, anything else? Yes. Yes, and, and, and it's really easy to think of the book of Jonah and only think about the fish story and because and that's what you think. That's what you read to your kids when they're little, but this is the fish is just a prop. 
It's just a prop. And uh, so don't get hung up on the prop. This, uh, Jonah's a much thicker, deeper book than I thought it was when I first started digging in. All right, anyone else? Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you for putting up with me. <laughs> Not many people will. Thank you. You're too kind. You're too kind. Let's have a word of prayer, and I'll get you out of here, all right? Father, we're grateful. We're grateful for this study. We're more grateful for your book. We're more grateful for what you're trying to teach us from this book of Jonah. And we admit, Father, or at least I will, that I am more like Jonah than I want to admit to. And uh, I want to look at Jonah and think, what a dummy. What, this is a guy with anger issues, and he's rebellious, and he's obstinate, and yet I'm all over this book. So, Father, I pray that as we go through this week and the weeks to come, that when we find ourselves unintentionally or unknowingly living out this story of Jonah, that you'll show us. That when we're giving way to our anger, when we're trying to get around something you want us to do, when we think the bad guys are worse than we are, whatever it is, when that happens, you would just tap us on the shoulder and say, hey, remember Jonah? And that that would be enough to help us turn. And Father, that's our heart's desire from this study, and we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thank you all. We'll see you in two weeks.